Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. <clears throat> if we can dim these lights a little bit. Now, uh, as I said, I wanted to show you some things. I wanted to put the passages up there. There's a lot of things to look at with regard to God's promise promises regarding the state of Israel. There's a lot of controversy today over the right of the Jewish people. But, you know, the moment I say that, I realize there has always been a lot of controversy over the Jewish people being in the back of the land. You know, as, as soon as I say that, there's always been controversy of Jewish people being anywhere in the world. You know, wherever we are, there's controversy. Nobody wants us. They like us for a time, then they say we've had enough of them, and then they move us on out. That's been the history of the Jewish people. And you know, if you've never read Abba Iban's volume called uh, Civilization and the Jews, it was written back in the 80s or so, I think, but it's still very pertinent. And his two major points about the history of the Jewish people is that they are people who have endured, and they are people who have contributed. You know, you think about the two uh, extremes, right? The people who have been highly pursued pursued and persecuted and hounded, killed, murdered, and driven. And yet there are people who have contributed to modern society and all societies throughout history have contributed way beyond their bulk and their numbers in, in our world at any point in history, in any point of time. Abi Yaban's book, Civilization and the Jews. And then there was a recent PBS uh, presentation that was entitled The Story of the Jews. And that too is a very powerful presentation on how God has brought his people through all kinds of trials. The focus in that presentation, which is really quite stirring for me, is the significance of the Jewish people being the people of the book, the people uh, associated with the word of God. And what, I think it's Simon Shama, I think that's his name, Simon Shama, uh, points out is the connection between the Jewish people and words. And the significance that words have played in the minds and hearts of the Jewish people, not least of which the penning of the word of God, not least of which their significance in law, their significance in poetry and in literature, and how words have significance. Of course, if you read the book, The Book Thief, or you saw the film, there it is again, words 
playing a part in disseminating life and the significance of the Jewish people in that grid. And of course, the Jewish Messiah, who is the word of God and who has given us life and life more abundantly. There are all kinds of things we can think about with words. You know, you think about the name of God, the name of God and the uniqueness of his name. But when I think of his name, it's significant that God, when he chose to reveal himself, he chose to reveal himself through words and to enable us to remember what he's done and to sort of capture all that has gone on. He has used words to convey to us all that we need to know for life and what we need to know for holiness and righteousness. It's really quite penetrating, isn't it? The story of the Jews focuses on the uniqueness of words in the lives and hearts of the Jewish people as a people. What I wanted to share this morning is how pervasive the desire of the Jewish, the desire the Jewish people have had to return to their homeland is unlike any other people's yearnings and desires. It is founded upon the word of God and the revelation of God regarding his purposes. But it goes, I don't don't know if this is the right way to say this. It goes beyond the words of God's promises. Maybe that's not quite the right way to say it. But in addition to God's promises about Israel's regathering in scripture and through the words of the prophets, you find the Jewish people's yearning for the return, their return to the land is expressed in so many of their prayers. It's ex- in expressed in so, many of their, so much of their poetry. It is, it is expressed in many of their essays, particularly with regard to Zionism and the formation of it. It is expressed even in political documents like their statement of independence and such. So I wanted to share with you some of the ways in which Israel's longing, the Jewish people's longing for the land of Israel is unlike any other people's. And while there may be others that are laying claim to the land, it is the Jewish people whose every aspect of life has been an expression of their desire for the land. Someone has even said, It may very well be true that what distinguishes a Jew as a Jew is his yearning for the land. Something to think about. One's yearning for the land. Is it really there in our heart and in our soul? Because wherever Jews have been dispersed, whatever nation they have found themselves in, there has always been that yearning next year. In Jerusalem. But in any case, here we go to the Jewish people's right. This is a photograph I took when I was in Israel. You're standing on the Mount of Olives right over the, um, uh, the cemetery, Jewish cemetery. And you can see the, uh, the sarcophagi that, that are there. A lot of these things prior to Israel being a state were just ruined by the Jordanians. They took a lot of these stones, they took a lot of these, uh, these um, what, what, do you call, what do you call them? Crates, you know, and there were graves, and they were all like sandstone, and they made latrines out of them, 
They used them to make roadways, etc. What you see now is the result of the Jewish people being back in the land. It was a travesty. And of course, you're looking at the old city of Jerusalem. Of course, before it is the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kindred Valley. Then you go on up, and in the right, left-hand corner of the Temple Mount, you know, you see the Alaska Mosque, the Golden Dome Mosque. You see the, uh, or the Mosque of Omar. You see the Alaska Mosque. That's the Silver Dome one. But between them, you see that corner. Oh, I've got a pointer. <laughs> uh, now you know this is going to take a long time. I got a pointer. But right here, this is what's referred to as the pinnacle of the temple. That's where Yeshua was taken and told to, uh, to jump off by the evil one. Of course, in the time of Messiah, this wasn't as built up. So it was much deeper, much uh, taller, hundreds of feet. You can see this is like a bus here. Anyway, these are just some things I'm pointing out to you. Over here is one of my favorite spots in all of Jerusalem because these are steps that lead up to three different gateways. They're sealed today. They were sealed by Suleiman the Magnificent, 1648, to keep out any of the enemies that the Turks would have uh, faced when the Ottomans took control. But this area here, recently excavated, last couple of years, last 10 years or so. Uh, are the steps that lead up to three gateways by which you can enter into the uh, Temple Mount and then up to the temple where it would be here to worship God. Now, the reason I like that is I had read an interview or in a book somewhere that one of the fellows that stepped on the moon, now, you know, Alzheimer's is setting in, not to make any kind of lightness of that, but uh, the the three men, I forget which one, but uh, he stepped on the moon. Uh, Armstrong, thank you. Neil Armstrong. And when he visited Jerusalem, he came up these steps. And he said, stepping on those steps was more important to him than stepping on the moon. Because these are the steps that Messiah had walked on when he went into Jerusalem. Josephus tells us how many steps there were. And indeed, the archaeologists found that exact number. Really kind of cool. And down here would be the city of David, Hezekiah's tunnel. Anyway, one other thing, let me just point out. The Temple Mount extends all the way here. And it goes off the the grid here a little bit. Then it comes back and around. It's the largest archaeological site in the world. Two and a half great pyramids of Giza can fit on the Temple Mount. So this is like a really uh, neat place and an exciting place and certainly a place Messiah is going to come to when he returns. Now, this is the people's rights. So here are some passages. If you want to write them down, you're fine. We'll probably put this on our website. But consider the things the Lord said at the very outset. We're in the beginning of the book of Genesis, just 12 chapters in. And the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, leave your people and go to a land. I will show you. Theologians have said the Hebrew scriptures are founded upon three things. Founded upon the revelation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Founded upon the people whom he has chosen. And founded upon the land that he is giving to them. Those are the three legs of the stool that hold up the revelation of the Hebrew scriptures. Revelation of God, revelation of his people, revelation of the promise of his land. Over and over again, those three things intertwine. Of course, with the revelation of God is the revelation of Messiah, who would be the son of God, who indeed would be God come in the flesh. All of that is sort of intertwined, interconnected to give us the revelation of the Hebrew scriptures. And without any one of those legs... The truth, the, the completion, the fullness of God's word fails us. And we're not doing justice in terms of understanding exactly what was critical to God 
and to the writers of scripture because over and over again, these are the three themes that we are confronted by in the Hebrew scriptures. In chapter 12, verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So first he's giving it to Abraham and now he tells us he's giving it to his offspring. In Genesis chapter 13, the Lord says to Abram, this is before his name change in chapter 17, lift up your eyes. From where you are, look north, south, east, west. That is to say, look anywhere you want. Look everywhere. And all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So first it's given to Abraham. Then it's given to Abraham and his descendants. Then it's given to Abraham and his descendants, Ad Olam, for all of time, forever. It is a promise that God gives to his people that he will not rescind. Paul says in Romans 11, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That is to say, he does not go back on his word. They are irrevocable. His promise to Abraham that I'll give you this land is irrevocable and his promise to Abraham's descendants are irrevocable and his promise that it will be that way forever are irrevocable. Now God does say to the Jewish people that if you disobey me, The judgment will be to be exiled off the land, but never that they would ever dispossess the land. They would always be the ones whose right it is to own the land and to possess it. But they may not always possess it. But it or enjoy it or live in it, but they will always be the rightful owners, if one could say. Maybe that's not really right because God is the owner of the land, but the one that he gives the land to are his people, the Jewish people. And that will never be rescinded if we believe Paul, not even looking at the Hebrew scriptures, if we believe Paul. So he says, go walk through the length and breadth of the land. Listen to that. Now he tells him not just see it, but walk. Wherever you go, that's what I'm giving you. Every step you take, that's what I'm giving you. Wherever you walk within the confines of the land, that's what I'm giving you. And keep this in mind. The only land that Abraham ever buys, the only land that ever Abraham ever has a deed to is a cave. In Hebron, known as Machpelah, where he, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, his wife Sarah, Isaac's wife Rebekah, and Jacob's wife Leah are buried. That's the only land he ever purchases. That's the only land he ever has a deed to by the end of his days. And yet God says, I'm giving you more than just a cave. Everywhere you walk, everywhere you look. Wherever you go, that's the land I'm giving to you. Now, the Lord does get specific. He tells us on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now we're in chapter 15. To your descendants, I give this land. Now we get some dimensions. From the river of Egypt, I believe is the Wadi El Arish, which is right on the border of the land of Israel and the Sinai Peninsula. It is to the great river, the Euphrates. That's its northern border. The northernmost border is the Euphrates as it flows up through Syria and beyond Damascus. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Pharisites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You know, just to pronounce those words earns me something. I mean, something, you know. No amens to that. I mean, just something. So the whole land of Canaan, I know in Bible college and all, we always said Canaan. I never quite got that. But in Hebrew school and Hebrew scriptures, it's Canaan. 
So I'm just not sure why we do things like that. We just, you know, destroy the Hebrew language, don't we? And in the process, the English language. But the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. And so here's the uh, area. You got the nations we just pronounced. They're all right in here. The Euphrates flows up around here. There's Damascus. So it flows here. And the Wadi El Arish, that's Kaddish Barnea, would be out this way a little bit more. And then, of course, you've got the Great Sea, the Mediterranean on the west, and you've got the Jordan River flowing down here on the east. There's the land that God is promising. In chapter 26, the Lord appears to Isaac. Here's his son, because you might say, now, wait a minute. Abraham has many descendants. Ishmael is one of his descendants. Could it have been given to him? Not only that, after the death of Sarah, he marries Keturah, and he has six more children. And from them are other nations that arise. Is it, has, does it have anything to do with them? Well, now we're told. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands. Now we know it's not Ishmael. Now we know it's not any of the other descendants Abraham had, according to, I think it's like Genesis 25 or so. And he says, the... For to you and your descendants, I'll give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham, I will give your descendants all these lands. Later in the book of Genesis, Isaac's final words to Jacob, may the Lord give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land, the land God gave to Abraham. So now we know it belongs to Isaac. But you might have said, but uh, what about Esau? Because Isaac had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. But now we know it doesn't go to Esau. It goes to Jacob. The elder will serve the younger. God had told Rebekah and presumably Isaac would have known. In chapter 28, he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. This, I believe, is when he leaves to run from Esau. He's asleep at Bethel, and God makes this promise to him. Could be wrong about the timing, but that's the statement. Then to Joseph, Jacob said to Joseph, this was his favorite son by his favorite wife, Rachel. So Joseph was his oldest son by Rachel, not the oldest son. I think that was Reuven or, or Levi, one of those. But uh, here, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me. And he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples. I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. The end of the book of Genesis. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land. They were not to remain in Egypt. You remember because of Joseph's interpreting of the dreams of Pharaoh. Pharaoh welcomes Jacob and his family into the land of Egypt and gives them the most fertile area in Egypt, the land of Goshen. Because the Jewish people were shepherds. So they needed the area to graze their sheep. So they're given the most fertile area by the five-finger region of the Nile. As it flows north into the Mediterranean, that five-finger region area is the area of Goshen. 
Joseph is tell, saying to his brothers, I'm going to die, but God is going to take you one day and bring you up out of this land, the land he promised on oath. Now we know exactly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Ishmael and not Esau, not the Arab peoples from whom they descend. So Joshua is told, get ready to cross the Jordan into the land. This is after the Exodus. And there's many things said in the Exodus about God's promise to the land, but we're moving through here. Get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. Now we know exactly who he's giving the land to, if there was any question. I will give you every place where you set your foot. Your territory will extend from the desert. That's the Arabian desert on the south to Lebanon in the north, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. So what we have here is the lands that Joshua conquered. This is the area he actually controlled. This is the area that he was yet to control. So by the end of the book of Joshua, this is what we see, but he could have gone all out, all here. Here's the Wadi El Arish. Here's the great sea, the Mediterranean. Here's the Euphrates is up here. Here's parts of Phoenicia, which is Lebanon. And of course, down the Jordan into the desert area, which is the area of Arabia to the south. So this is the land of Israel. It is bigger than what Israel possesses today, as you can see. Not quite as big as some people want to make it all the way to the Euphrates. They want to take all the area of what is present day Iraq and present day Jordan. I don't think that's what God is saying. And some want to say the river of Egypt, meaning the Nile, but I don't, and the, and this, and the uh, Sinai Peninsula here, but I don't think that's what he means. I think he means this section here. In any case, in the Psalms, so we've gone through some of the, th- the passages in the Torah, something in the historical book, at least the book of Joshua, but we could look at many other passages. There just isn't enough time this morning. But I wanted to share with you some of this. Psalm 122, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Notice the yearning. This is the point I'm trying to make. Why did the Jewish people care so much about the land? Why didn't they take Uganda when it was offered to them by the British back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, of which the first Zionist Congress was interested in pursuing back in 1897? Why was it that Theodore Herzl was willing to consider Uganda? Think about that. We could have been in Africa. Might have enjoyed the music and all the cultural things there. But Uganda, and the only reason, the only reason the Jewish people and the Zionist Congress did not agree to Uganda was because of the Eastern European Jews who refused to accept it. They said, if you even vote on this, we don't care if you have a majority, we're walking out. And those Eastern European Jews, three and a half million in Poland alone, many more in the Crimea, You know, the area today in the Ukraine that's under a great deal of conflict, that was always a hotbed of Jewish people. Even today, there's 200,000 Jews that live there. But that's the area of Odessa. Those are the areas where some of the greatest sages uh, had lived. Very Jewish area, and it's still a Jewish area today. But here's the thing. In 1897 was the time of the czars. And that's when the czars had instituted a policy against the Jews. One third would be killed. One third would be uh, kicked out of the land and one third would be conscripted. I shared last, last week how my, gra- great, my grandfather was conscripted during that time in the late 1890s. My great grandfather, his father went to Israel, but he had to remain in Russia 
because of the czarist policies. It was the Jews who were experiencing the greatest persecution at that time that refused to leave Russia to go to Uganda. We would rather stay in Russia and face the suffering than go to a land that God had not given to us. So you vote on whatever you want, we're not going. And it was because of those Russian Jews that the Zionist Congress then settled on the land of Israel. Is that not remarkable? What it reveals is the yearning, the deep desire and connection the Jewish people, wherever they might be, have toward the land of promise. And so here you see the same yearning. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. I mean, that's the joy. That's the excitement. We were just, uh, we rejoiced that with those who said, let's go up to the house of the Lord and our feet are standing in Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. In verse, in Psalm 137, we have one of the greatest uh, mourning dirges in all of written literature where the Jewish people who are exiled from the land into Babylon say, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem, my highest joy. You won't read anything like that in any Arab literature. No matter how much they say the land belongs to us, they don't have a love for the land like Israel has had throughout their history. Isaiah says, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Look at this. The law law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the connection with Messiah's reign, the law of Messiah being presented to the world. But where does it get presented from? From the law, from Jerusalem and from Zion. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Then the Lord will create all, all over Mount Zion. Look at these places. A cloud of smoke by day, the Shekinah glory. Jeremiah says, when they were in exile, when 70 years are completed, I will come and fulfill my pr- pr- promise to bring you back to the land of Israel. Ezekiel says, but you, O mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit. Look at this focus on the land. I will take the people out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your land. You will live in the land that I gave. Look at the past tense. It's already yours. It's given. You just need to get in there and possess it. The prophet Joel Joel says, Judah will be inhabited forever. Jerusalem through all generations. The Lord dwells in Israel, in Zion. Zephaniah says, I'll gather you and I'll bring you home. That's where we belong. That's our home. I'll give you honor and praise when I restore your fortunes. And the book of Chronicles, which ends the Jewish Bible. In Christian Bibles, it ends with Malachi, the promise of Elijah. But in Jewish Bibles, it ends with Chronicles because of this verse. And the verse tells us, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build the temple. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him. Here it is. Let him go up. The Bible ends in the Jewish Bible with the encouragement, the challenge, dare I say it, the command. Let us go up. 
And so we're to remember the love for the land is built into our very fiber. And to go up to the land is God's ultimate desire on the part of his people. But it's not just the Bible. And here's where it gets really interesting. You know, in Jewish writing, there are two types of writing. There's the halakha, from halach, to walk, to go, be on the way. Those are statements that are of legal significance. They are binding statements that are of legal, have legal authority by the rabbis. But in addition to halakha, you had agadah. That is, statements, stories, homilies, suggestions, ideas, uh, things that are not legally binding but are meant to sort of captivate our understanding of a given passage or a given aspiration. And so one of these, Agadot says, uh, Rav Yossi Barahalafta to his son Rav Yishmael, if you wish to see the divine presence in this world, involve yourself in Torah, the study of God's word, but do it in the land of Israel. So there's the focus on the land. The land of Israel, the air of it itself can make one wise. All of these things are revealing the yearning, the aspiration, the connection with the promised land. All blessings, consolations, and bounties. I love this passage, by the way. Which the Holy One, blessed be he, brings upon Israel emanate from Zion. Here's how we know that. The Torah will come from Zion. We just read it. Out of Zion, the Torah will go forth. Blessing comes from Zion. Psalm 134, the Lord bless you out of Zion. Revelation of God comes from Zion. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appeared. Support from Zion. Send forth thy help from the sanctuary and support thee out of Zion. Life comes from Zion like the dew of Hermon that comes down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forever. Greatness comes from Zion. The Lord is great in Zion. Salvation comes from Zion. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. Isn't that kind of cool? He takes all these passages and he says, look, this is why it's so important. Everything comes from there. By the way, the Brit Hadashah says the same thing. All Israel shall be saved when the deliverer shall come out of Zion and turn all ungodliness from Jacob. Zion is pivotal. It is central to all of God's revelation to us. The Agadot is, the Agadah is revealing. The prayers of the Jewish people are focused on Jerusalem, bring us peace from the four corners of the earth. Lead us right into the land. In the 18 benedictions, the Shemona Esrei, it's called the Amida because you're supposed to stand when it's recited. Ahmad, to stand. And we find this prayer. And to Jerusalem, your city, may you return in compassion. May you rest within it as you've spoken. May you rebuild it soon in our days as an eternal structure. May you speedily establish the throne of David. Blessed are you, the builder of Jerusalem. The aspiration, the yearning. I just want you to see how important Israel and Jerusalem has been to the Jewish people. This scripture was enough. But it goes beyond scripture to include their prayers, their uh, Agadah statements. Have mercy on Zion for it's the source of our life. To the one who's deeply humiliated, bring salvation in our days. Who gladdens Zion through our children. Customs. In Israel, among the Jewish people, are meant to convey our, the importance of the land. When a man plasters his house, he's to leave a small space unplastered. Because the temple's not been rebuilt, how can we rebuild our homes completely? When a man makes preparations for a festive meal, he leaves something out because we can't offer the sacrifices. When a woman adorns herself with a jewelry, she leaves something off because we can't adorn Jerusalem if the temple's not built. 
So we deprive ourselves, even as the land has been deprived of all that it is expected to have. There are fast days that are associated with Jerusalem. There are actually four, but I just mentioned these three that have to do with the laying of seeds, the breaking of the walls, or the destruction of the temple. The bridegroom breaks a glass. We all say mazel tov, but the breaking of the glass is to remind us of the destruction of the temple. The Passover Seder ends, L'shana Haba'ah, Barushalayim. But I want you to see this as well. One of the great poets of history is Judah HaLevi, lived in Spain around the time of the Crusades. This is just one of these fabulous poems. My heart is in the east. Remember, he's in Spain, in the west. But his heart is in the east, Israel. My heart is in the east. I'm at the ends of the west. How can I taste what I eat? And how could it be pleasing to me as long as I'm not in Israel? How shall I render my vows and my bonds while yet Zion lies beneath the fetter of Edom? Edom during this period of time was a symbol for uh, the crusaders. And I'm in the chains of Arabia, the Muslims who controlled Spain at that time. It would be easy for me to leave all the bounty of Spain. All the, you know, that was, is considered, the Jewish people in Spain is considered the golden era of Jewish history. And so there was great prosperity, great accomplishments like Judah Halevi, who is this physician, philosopher, poet, laureate. And he says, it would be easy for me to leave all of this. Think about that. It would be easy for me to leave the United States. It would be easy for for me to leave Beverly Hills. It would be easy for me to uh, to leave Beacon Hill if you're in Boston. It would be easy for me to leave Manhattan skyline. That's what he's saying. As it is precious for me to behold the dust of the desolate sanctuary. Because Jerusalem was not rebuilt at that time. One of these fabulous phrases, Zion, thou art anxious of news of thy captives. Zion, thou art doubtless anxious for news of your captives. They ask after you, they who are the remainder of your flock, from west and east, north and south, from near far, bring peace from every side. And peace is the desire of the captive who gives his tears, the captives of those those living outside the land. Like the dew on Hermon yearns for the day they will fall on tiny hills. I'm a mourner who weeps for your poverty. And when I dream of the return, I'm the accompaniment to your songs. Oh, man, this is like, you know, this is unbelievably beautiful, isn't it? There are other p- poets, not Achaim Nachman Bialik here in the 1934 he died. Greetings on your return, lovely bird, to my window from warmer climates. How my soul longed to hear your voice in the winter. When you left my dwelling. He's in the winter because he's outside the land. Do you bring greetings for my fellows in Israel? For my brothers near and far? Oh happy ones. Surely they must know that I suffer. Oh how I suffer in pain because I'm outside the land. Do they know how great are my enemies here? How many rise up against me? Sing to me my bird of the wonders of that land. Where springtime always dwells. There's so much you know. And I wanted to conclude with this. The Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, have a similar yearning, though not to the same extent, because there are other things the New Covenant Scriptures are revealing. But Messiah says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as chicks under one's wings. But your house is now left unto you desolate, but it will not always be that way. Because when you say, Baruch Habah B'Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, I will come and I will reverse the desolation and make it prosperous. So all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. 
He will turn all ungodliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The whole point, I want you to see this, is that we're remembering Israel's Independence Day. That independence is unlike any other national independence. It's an independence that originates in the heart and mind of God, who gave that land to a man and his descendants and their descendants after him. A land that is fully described, a land that the Jewish people have always resided in. There's never been a time no Jews have ever lived in the land. A time when all Jews everywhere have aspired to return and to go. A land that is the land to which Messiah came, from which he left, to which he shall return. And thus, when we think about this Independence Day, we can think about a lot of things on the political spectrum and a lot of things in the contemporary world. But I'd like us to think about God's love for this land and the people that he has given the land to. The final chapter has not yet been written. The story is being told of God's plans and purposes for Israel, but the final chapter has not yet been written. That final chapter will come when Messiah returns. That final chapter will be written not only when the Messiah returns, but when all Israel shall be saved. The land cannot experience the full blessings of God until the people are responsive to him and are connected to him and are reconciled to him and are redeemed by him. That is why all the prophets, they not only speak of Israel's return, but Israel's restoration, not only physically, but spiritually. And as Ezekiel the prophet says, the Lord will breathe on those bones and sinews and muscle and tissue and skin. And then the bones and all that the bones are shrouded by will come to life and rise up a mighty and powerful army. We're seeing Israel right now in the sinew, tissue, muscle, skin stage of God's plans and purposes. What we pray for is that all Israel will be saved. What we pray for is what Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. What we pray for is the peace of Jerusalem, for they shall prosper that love thee. What we pray for is the coming of Messiah. And we say like John, even so come Lord Yeshua. Why? Because his feet will touch on the Mount of Olives. And then he will enter in to the city of Jerusalem. And his people will be restored spiritually and physically. And all the world will recognize Messiah as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. This morning, we have opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Messiah said, do this as often as you will in remembrance of me. As we think of the land, the land connected to the people, and the land connected to their God and promised coming Messiah, you and I 
have already come to recognize the promised Messiah. You and I have already begun that restoration. You and I have already entered into that new covenant which God said he would establish with all peoples who recognize Yeshua and certainly his people who recognize him as well. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.